Praise God. Well, hello, Grace Point family. How are we? Praise God. It is a, a good time to be alive. Amen. I know it's a challenging season, but God is moving through our lives and through our church. Last week, there were five young people that, that took a step of obedience. Amen. Come on. In the waters of baptism. And here's what I know today. There are more of you out there that have yet to take this step. And so Pastor Floyd, he's right over here. All right. He's going to be over on this side right after the service. If you have given your life to the Lord, if you've confessed faith in Jesus Christ, but you haven't taken this step of obedience, I want to invite you. Just join him here right after the service. You can learn more about baptism on Palm Sunday. We're going to have a celebration here. We're going to celebrate uh, new life in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if it's your first time here today, I want to welcome you. My name is Daniel, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Point. You're joining us at a good time. We're about two-thirds of the way through a series on... Thank you. I was like, man, somebody better know what we're talking about for the last eight weeks, right? Spiritual disciplines. And, and so through this series, here's how we've described spiritual disciplines. We said this, that a spiritual discipline is a good habit that allows you to remain open to God and to develop yourself spiritually. And so each of these spiritual disciplines allow us to remain open to God and, and what he wants to do in our lives. And our openness to God in these things actually allows him to work in us to make us into the image of God, the Imago Dei. And so from the very beginning, we said that the purpose of these disciplines is the total transformation of the self. Now, I hope as we've talked about all of these things that you understand that these are not just something else to do, okay? Not something else to feel guilty about not doing, okay? Ultimately, all of these things lead to freedom in our lives. There is a corresponding freedom to, to each one of these disciplines. And so as you live into them, you actually don't feel more burdened down with more stuff to do. No, you actually become lighter because of the freedom that these things bring. John Piper says it this way. He says, when you become less preoccupied with yourself and more preoccupied with God, that's the key to your freedom. God does not satisfy you by giving you great thoughts about yourself, but by filling you with a great awareness of him. And that's what these spiritual disciplines do, right? So last week we talked about the twin disciplines of silence and... I'm putting you on the spot today. What was the other one? Solitude, okay? Silence and solitude. We talked about the freedom that these things bring into our lives. It's a freedom from noise, freedom from distraction. It's the freedom to actually be present with God. The freedom to not always have to speak, all right? Not always have to have the last word. Can I just tell you that is a, a freeing thing? And today I want to talk to you about a discipline that is absolutely necessary for you to live into the freedom that Christ purchased for you on the cross, it is the discipline of confession. Confession. Now, the Greek word for confession is homologeo. Homologeo. It literally means this, to speak the same thing. It is to concede to what is factual or what is true. We are, when we're confronted with truth, sometimes we're backed into a corner, right? Did you do this? Confronted with truth, sometimes we're like, I, I confess, right? It was me. It's an acknowledgement in our lives when we talk about the spiritual discipline. It's an acknowledgement of sin. It's an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. And so to confess in the New Testament, it literally means to speak the same thing or to agree with. And so the spiritual discipline of confession is this. It is the regular, intentional practice 
of coming into agreement with God. That is saying the same thing that God says. When we sin, when we stumble, when we fall short, all of us, kind of like Adam, think that we can hide from God, right? That we can hide our our sin from him, and yet we know this. He knows our sin, right? He, He knows our shortcomings. He knows our failures. And so the practice of confession actually brings life by admitting to God what he already knows about us, living into that reality, right? And in order to understand this discipline, you have to, first of all, know the heart of God. At the very heart of God is both the desire to give and to forgive. To give and to forgive. We see the heart of God clearly in the the redemptive process of God that culminated in the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, there's this general understanding for many in the world when they think about the cross or they, they hear about that, and it goes something like this. People think, man, people were so evil and, and, and so bad that God was so angry with them and so angry he could not forgive their sins unless someone took the punishment for them. But i got to say, that's so far from the truth because it was love and not anger that brought Jesus to the cross. You see, the death of Jesus Christ came as a result of God's desire to forgive, not his reluctance to forgive. Something that when Jesus died on the cross, he cried out these words, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? You think that this was a moment of great weakness, but the truth is it was actually a moment of greatest victory. Think about it. In that moment, Jesus, the one who walked in constant communion with the Father, was so completely identified with mankind that he was actually the embodiment of sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it was only in this way that Jesus could redeem sin. And so that moment on the cross was was a moment of great triumph. That's why we we come to the communion table. That's why we remember it. That's why Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Because it was this moment when he defeated the powers of darkness by his presence on the cross. And then he declared what? It is finished, right? In other words, the task is complete and Jesus was free to give up his spirit to the Father. You need to know this this morning, that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the cross is key. It it is central to our lives as believers. We need to remember what was accomplished on the cross because it is the ground upon which we know that confession and forgiveness are things that actually change us. You, You see, without the cross, this discipline of confession, it could be therapeutic, right? I got, I just got to get that off my chest, but ultimately not transformational. But because of the cross, this discipline leads to a change in our relationship with God. It is a means of healing. It's a means of actually transforming our spirit. And so I want to take you to a story in scripture today that is a story of great sin and confession. We're going to read a lot today, so I encourage you to turn to the passage. 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're on the Bible app, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. If you have a paper Bible, well, you got what you got, all right? Just follow along with us. The scripture will also be on the screens. But I have to warn you today before we dive into this that this is a difficult passage. It's a a challenging passage. And so brace yourself because we're going to look at one of the lowest times in the life of King David. But I I love the fact that the writers of 2 Samuel 
don't gloss over this season in David's life. They don't try to hide it from us. And it gives us this understanding that God can use anyone. And it doesn't mean that they're perfect, okay? We need to have glimpses into the failures of others, and Scripture allows us to do that. How many of you are like me? You like to learn from others' mistakes, right? I would much rather learn from your mistakes, right, than have to walk through it myself. And so this is an opportunity this morning to learn from David what not to do, but also how to respond to sin in our lives. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Are you there? Two of you. Are you there? All right. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. The writer of 2 Samuel wants us to know that David is not where he's supposed to be. David was supposed to go to war. It was the proper time. It was the right thing for the king to do. And I don't know, maybe he felt so secure in his reign that he thought, oh, I don't need to go. Maybe he was still tired from the the past season of war. Whatever the reason, David was out of position. And whenever you're out of position, out of the place that God wants you to be, it can be very dangerous. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Late one afternoon, he arose from his nap. And he's walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, the woman and said, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? He's in your army, man. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Now, why does the author tell us this? You'll see in the next verse. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Now, the writer wants to make it very clear, leave no doubt, that this child is David's child, right? So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Send him to me. Now, here's the opportunity to confess, right? Here's the opportunity to get this right. Man, I messed up. Here's what happened. Here's the opportunity to get this right. No, that's not what David does. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked Asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. He's saying, hey, Uriah, you know, I just want to see how things are going. You know, the Lord laid you on my heart. I'm just, just checking in, man, right? I'm checking how's everything going out there in the war. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. David saying, go home, relax, man, be with your wife. Like, just relax, be with your wife. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. You see, here is a man who's loyal. He's loyal to David. He's loyal to his brothers in arms. They're out there sleeping in the battlefield, right? And and so he says, I can't go home. I can't be with my wife in the comfort of my home while they're out there. Verse 10, when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. They're out there in tents. And 
my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, well, why don't you stay here today? And tomorrow I'll send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. Here's the the next step, right? I'm going to get him drunk. And maybe then he'll go home to his wife. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. Verse 14. In the morning, David thought of another plan. He wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Watch this. Uriah doesn't know what the letter that he is delivering says. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. And then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Uriah, get this, he's delivering his own death warrant. Right? I'm reading this, I'm like, could you just be a little bit nosy, Uriah? Just open the letter, man. Look at what it says, right? And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite. Is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12, and the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ooh lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves 
to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if it were too little, I would add to you as much more. He said, if it wasn't enough, I would have given you more, David. Why have you displeased the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. And you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you and out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And then verse 14, very difficult, right? Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. I wanted to read to you that whole story today. I know it's a long one because I wanted you to feel the weight of it today. We know that David is described in scripture as a man after God's own heart. We know that he was called, he was anointed by God to be king. But understand, having a calling and an anointing does not accept you from, exempt you from temptation in life, right? Just because God has called you to something, don't put your guard down. See, none of us in this room, including myself, is exempt from temptation. And so as we look at the discipline of confession... We need to recognize this morning that every one of us has weaknesses. In his book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster says this about confession. He says, confession is a difficult discipline for us because we all too often view the believing community as a fellowship of saints before we see it as a fellowship of sinners. We feel that everyone else has advanced so far into holiness that we are isolated and alone in our sin. We cannot bear to reveal our failures and shortcomings to others. We imagine that we are the only ones who have not stepped on the high road to heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another and live in veiled lies and hypocrisy. How sad is that? We live in veiled lies and hypocrisy. How are you doing, brother? Good. I'm blessed, right? How's things going in your life? I'm good. Everything's great, right? And so often we we think, man, nobody else could know what I'm going through or what I'm walking through or what I'm struggling with. And so we keep it to ourselves and the enemy loves that. You, You see, at some point in your life, you're going to go through a season where you're thinking thoughts you should not be thinking. Or you're living out something and doing something that you should not be doing. And the only way to get back on track is to confess. So often we think, no, I'm just going to move on. I'm going to move on. I'm going to, I'm going to make like it never happened. But the only way to get right with God and to experience healing is to confess. As you look at the story in David's life, we see this, that he got to remain king at that time, right? And he remained king for one reason and one reason alone. He confessed. 
It's interesting because if you compare King David's life to, to Saul's life, right, you think, man, David's the one who loses the kingdom, not Saul, right? There were two things that King Saul did wrong. He was supposed to wait for Samuel, right, to come to offer the sacrifice. He grew impatient, and so he did it himself. Saul was supposed to kill a king that he, he didn't kill, right? And, and so over that, he loses the kingdom. But look at David. He steals a man's wife. He gets her pregnant. He kills the man and, and tries to cover it all up. And David was going to move on like, like nothing ever happened until the prophet Nathan shows up. Again, if you compare the actions of Saul and David, man, David should lose the kingdom, not Saul, right? But the difference between Saul and David is this. Saul never confessed his sin, but David did. And so here's my desire for us as a church, that that we would become people of holiness, but also that we would be a people who are approachable and loving so that others can come and confess what they're walking through. So that if another in our body is, is struggling with sin, man, they know that you're safe to come to. In order to live into this discipline of confession, though, i got to say this, we have to first of all be honest with ourselves. The discipline of confession says this, I'm going to own my own stuff, right? 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I want you to see the typical destructive cycle of sin and how confession helps break us out of that cycle. Here's the cycle generally. First of all, it starts with sin. And what is sin? It's, it, it's missing the mark. It's living outside of God's will and God's plan for us. And so when we do something that we know is wrong, because we have a, a moral conscience, because the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, all of a sudden we feel guilt over that thing. Guilt's a good, good thing, right? But we feel that guilt. And, and if we don't turn in that moment to the Lord, then that guilt will lead to a deep sense of isolation. We get to that point where we think, man, no one else has ever done anything like this. I'm the only one who could possibly be struggling with this sin, and that leads to hopelessness. And at the point of hopelessness, if there's not some kind of intervention, here is what will happen. Sin will repeat itself. It becomes a destructive cycle in the lives of so many. But what breaks that cycle? It is confession. You see, David in this story, man, he had just moved on. He thought, man, I covered my sin. I've hid it well. Nobody else needs to know about it. But again, 2 Samuel lets us know. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David had moved on. And here's what I believe. If God did not intervene, he would have likely repeated that sin. His life would have fallen into this cycle of sin. And and so God lovingly sends the prophet Nathan to come to him in the story, right? And he gives this story of the rich man who stole the poor man's sheep. And again, David's furious. Why? Because here's the thing. He had moved from the sin to a place of self-righteousness. He had covered it up. He moved on. And so now he's angry with sin in someone else's life. And here's the thing. Self-righteousness will always, will always cause us to be more disturbed with the sins of others than our own sin. David was hiding his sin, but God loved him enough to confront him with it. And so the first step in confession is this, simply to admit that you're wrong. And David's response, it shows his heart. Look at that verse again, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. 
He recognized ultimately that, that his sin, his wrongdoing, was an offense to God, first of all. And Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Understand this. The prophet didn't need to pin David in the corner, right? When he was confronted with his sin, David was like, man, I don't know what you're talking about, right? I'm not sure I understand the story, Nathan. What are, what are you trying to say? I, I, I don't get it, right? No, no, hear me. God cannot do anything with a person like that. The first step to confession is being able to admit I was wrong. Nathan doesn't have to keep coming back to David. It's dealt with in this moment of loving confrontation. David hears the story. David says, man, that's wrong. And Nathan says, that's you. And he's like, yes, that's me. Right? He confesses. If only we would live in such a way where we would confess that quickly, right? To wrongdoing in our lives. When you're wrong, when you fall into sin, admit you're wrong. Understand today that, that though that con with confession in our lives, you have to understand it goes two ways, okay? We need to confess vertically, but we also need to confess horizontally. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? Isn't confession between me and God? I, like, why does anyone else need to be in my business, right? I, it's a, I got a personal relationship with God. I, I settled it with him. We're good. Well, that's the first part is settling it with God, confessing it to God. Confessing, agreeing again with what he already knows is happening in your life. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, you know the verse? If we confess our sins, he is faithful, amen? He's faithful and he's just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so there's this vertical confession that happens between you and God that leads to forgiveness in your life. Now why does God send the prophet Nathan to David? Because he had apparently stopped listening to God internally. And here's the thing. Whenever we stop listening to God internally, God will send someone externally, right? And David could have been like, well, who are you to be in my... I'm the king, right? Who are you to be in my business? But God, again, lovingly sends another voice to speak into his life. And when it comes to this, when it comes to the discipline of confession, here's where we often get it wrong. We think this, man, a, a vertical confession is all I need. I've got it right with God, and, and that's all that matters. Yes, you have a relationship with God. I pray you do. But understand, God did not create you to live outside of community. And so vertical confession brings forgiveness, but horizontal confession leads to healing. When we confess our sins to the Lord, he forgives us. Yes, absolutely. And when we confess our sins to others, to another person, we are healed. Look at James 5.16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be, what's the word? Come on, what's the word? That you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You know what, so often we push back on this. Again, I don't, I, I don't need anyone else in my business. If they know what I'm doing, they're just going to judge me. And we can make all of these excuses that keep us from coming to a place of healing. Because until we confess our sins one to another, I want to tell you, there's no light shown into those dark places in your life. There's no accountability. Are you with me today? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You notice the other verse didn't say anything about healing. That vertical confession with God, it was all about forgiveness. But horizontal confession leads to healing. 
And this is why this discipline of confession, we, we say it is a, a discipline of community. Because that's how powerful Christian community ought to be. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, if you're like me, you probably learned this verse, first of all, in the King James. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? You know that one? Now, what's the verse saying? It's saying this, until you confess horizontally, you cannot be healed. And understand, I can't pray for you effectively and fervently if I don't know what you're going through. Sometimes people come to me after a service, they say, Pastor, can you just pray for me? I say, well, how can I pray for you? What specifically? Oh, oh you, you know, just, just, just pray for me. No, no I, I don't know, right? Just, just pray for me. I, I'm going through it. Listen, if you give me vague requests, I can only give you vague prayers, right? God, would you just do it? I don't know. Just do it, God. I remember leading a small group with the young adults for a while, and we'd go around the group at the end and ask for a prayer request, and so often there were these unspoken prayer requests, right? Just unspoken. Okay. You don't want to share a little bit more? Just, just an unspoken request. How do you pray for those? God, you know the need, Lord. None of us else in this room know what this brother's going through, right? But would you just do it, Lord? But here's the thing. When you confess vertically and you open horizontally and you open up to a brother or sister that you can trust, all of a sudden they can pray for you effectively. They can pray fervently that you would see a victory over that sin in your life. All of that sudden, that sin is out in the open and light has been shown on it and there is some accountability that actually leads to healing. Come on. And, and that's what the church is supposed to be. This place where you know there's brothers and sisters, it is safe to go to them. I, I know when I share what I'm going through that they're going to pray for me, that they're going to stand with me, that they're going to hold me accountable. What we need sometimes, all of us, is for someone to come alongside of us and to pray for us and to hold us accountable so that we can be healed. Understand, confession is a discipline of community because in community, I can be healed from sin in my life. I can be healed from addictions in my life. But, but we also need to be the type of community where others feel safe confessing what they're going through. Now, it's interesting. If you look at the Gospels, if you look at Jesus' life, can I just say, was there ever a time that you can see where somebody involved in sin comes to Jesus and they, they fall on their knees before him? Can you think of a single time when Jesus reacts negatively to them? <laughs> Can you think of a time when, when Jesus turns away a sinner, when he is disgusted with their sin and says, you know, I can't deal with that. You can search the gospel this week. I want to tell you, you won't find them. But who does Jesus get upset with over and over again? <laughs> it's the Pharisees. It's the self-righteous. He gets upset with those who don't see their own need, who don't own their own stuff, while at the same time judging others. And here's the thing, when they judge others, so often they're really condemning themselves. You see, the self-righteous tend to project their sin onto someone else and judge it in that person rather than looking inside, right? You see how this discipline of confession plays out in the church? It plays out in this way, when I own my own stuff, when I come before the Lord daily and I say, Lord, would you search me? And the Holy Spirit puts his finger on areas in my life where 
I'm living outside of God's will and God's desire. When I confess that to the Lord, I'm forgiven. But then I need to bring it out into the open. I need to confess it to a brother or sister in Christ, okay? And I recommend confessing to someone of the same sex, unless it's your spouse, okay? Find someone that you can trust. And when I do that in a loving, trusting relationship, there's healing. We've all heard it said that hurt people hurt people, right? You've heard that saying before. But I also believe this today, that healed people heal people. Healed people heal people. When I move into a place of forgiveness and and freedom, when I receive healing in my life, then I'm able to be there for a brother or sister in their struggle. And that's why this discipline is a discipline of community. Bonhoeffer writes these words. He says, anyone who lives beneath the cross and who has discerned in the cross of Jesus the utter wickedness of all men and his own heart will find there is no sin that can ever be alien to him. Anyone who has once been horrified by the dreadfulness of his own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified even with the rankest sin of his brother. Here's the truth. Once we take stock of our own sin and our own heart, right, then regardless of what others have done, when they come to us, we can be like Paul, man, I'm the chief of sinners, right? Therefore, there is nothing that anyone can confess to me that will ultimately shake me. When you look at the life of Peter, right, he denies Jesus, right? Right before the cross, he denies Jesus. Well, what's the next time he sees him? He sees him on a beach, right? And, and Peter's out in a boat. And man, if the guilt and the shame of what he did, did took over, Peter would have swam the other way, right? I'm going to get away from Jesus. But yet we see him run to Jesus. Why? Because he knew that Jesus would know what to do with what he had done. I want to tell you today, Jesus still knows what to do with what you've done. And a mark of maturity in Christ is that when you stumble and when you fall, notice I said when, I didn't say if, when you stumble and when you fall, that you run to Christ, not away from him, because you realize in that moment that the grace of God is exactly what you need. You see, church, if we live into this reality of confession, then we convey that spirit to others. They'll know, man, it's safe to come to us. They'll know that we can receive anything that they would share. And so I just want to challenge you, church. Let's live into this reality. Amen? Let's be those who would own our own stuff. Let's be those who would come before God daily asking that he would search our heart. Those who confess our sin to God the Father that we would receive forgiveness in our lives. That those who would confess to our brothers and sisters and receive prayer, receive support, receive healing. Man, I love this discipline of confession because I've seen what can happen in people's lives when they actually deal with sin. I've also seen what can happen when they shy away from dealing with sin. But before we come to the communion table today, I want to take you to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, this was David's full confession to God when he was confronted by Nathan with his sin. Would you stand with me today? This was David's confession, and this can be a model for our confession. You can pray this psalm very easily. But David said this to God. He said, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. 
than my sin is ever before you, before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. God, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold within me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness. He's saying, God, deliver me from the guilt of shedding blood, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare. As we come to the communion table today, as we prepare to take of the cup and the bread today, Understand the power of confession in your life. It's been said that confession is good for the soul. But I want to tell you as a believer in Jesus Christ, when you confess your sin to him, it does more than just just make you feel good. But it actually allows for forgiveness to flow into your life. God desires for that forgiveness to flow into your life. That's why Jesus went to the cross. But he also wants healing for you. Some of you, it's going to take going to a brother or sister and saying, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I'm walking with through. Would you pray for me? Would you stand with me? Would you walk with me? As we prepare to receive the elements, Scripture says that everyone ought to examine themselves, right? Before they eat the bread and they drink the cup. And so let's take a moment before we receive it today to just examine ourselves in this moment. Allow the Lord to put his finger on any area of sin in your life. Confess it before him today. Know today that he is faithful, that he's just, that he will forgive us of our sins. And the promises he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So take a moment before we sing before.